Thanks for tuning in to the Survival to Thrival podcast, based on the book series with the same name. I'm Helen Croydon, and I'm the interviewer of the biggest stars of the show, the two co-authors, Tehi Norm and Bob Tinker. Tehi and Bob are a duo of investor and entrepreneur. They have a long history of working together and have written two books together, aimed at founders and entrepreneurs striving to build enterprise startups. This podcast is based on the themes, advice and real world stories from their book series, Survival to Thrival. If you enjoyed this, please like it, subscribe or share it with your network. Welcome to the debut episode of the Survival to Thrival podcast, which we are all very excited about. Today, I'm going to be talking to Tehi and Bob about finding go-to-market fit, the key theme in their book series on how to build enterprise startups. As anyone who's read their book or books will know, go-to-market fit is the key to unlocking growth. So today, we're going to unpick that. Bob, starting with you, on a high level, what is go-to-market fit or GTM fit, as you sometimes call it? Thanks, Alan. Having been a multi-time entrepreneur, one of the things that I'm used to hearing about and used to thinking about is product market fit. And maybe it's useful to talk about what go-to-market fit is not. Uh, Go-to-market fit is not the same thing as product market fit. Go-to-market fit is actually the missing link between finding product market fit and unlocking growth. And why it's important is that there are a lot of B2B software and SaaS companies that get the product market fit. They win their first 10, 15, 20 customers. Yeah. And then they say, all right, let's go grow. And they hire a bunch of salespeople and all of a sudden burn goes up and they go from 20 customers to 22 customers. So there are a lot of companies that get the product market fit, but fail to unlock growth. And that missing link is go to market fit. And it's really, how do you find predictable repeatable sales. Right. And there are three parts to it. Number one, have you found the urgent pain? Number two, is there a repeatable go-to-market playbook that you can use to find and win customers over and over again? And the third part is, do you have the right go-to-market model for your product and your customers? Those three things, when you find them, you found go-to-market fit, and that's the recipe to unlock growth. Right. So we are going to go into those in, in a bit more detail through this. Uh, Tehi, I want to bring you in. How do you explain go-to-market fit to a first-time founder or first-time CEO who's never seen it before? Oh, thank you, Helen. And so in, in talking about the three parts that Bob mentioned, urgent pain, repeatable, go-to-market playbook, and having the right go-to-market model, I find it helpful to convey it as part of this imagery of uh, of, of surfing, and that is... How do you go from paddling to surfing? Because when you paddle, you know, you burn a lot of energy to go a short distance. But when you surf, you feel this momentum, you know, this sort of the kind of feeling that you have with go to market fit. And so finding the urgent pain, the first element Bob mentioned, is like catching the wave. And what that gets you is it just gets you a lot of leads. The second uh, element, the repeatable go to market playbook, it's like riding the wave. And that allows you to find and win customers in the same way. And then the third is uh, the right go-to-market model. It's like having the right surfboard, which is customized for your team and your business. And like, let me give you an example from Mobile Iron, sort of what that actually turned into once we got that right. 
The um, so rewind back to 2010. We spent 2009 building our first product and finding product market fit. And we had found that we've been able to win 10, 15, 20 customers at that point. But they were kind of different. It wasn't really super repeatable. And then as we went through Q1, Q2, 2010, um, we found the urgent pain, the repeatable playbook. We got our good market nailed down. And we went from winning five customers in a quarter to 25 new customers in a quarter to 100 new enterprise customers in a quarter. That by the time we entered into 2012, we were winning over 500 new enterprise customers in a quarter, which is nuts. But that was really the power of once we had found go-to-market fit, we were really able to just turn the crank and unlock growth in the company. And that forever changed Mobile Iron. And it's a big part of how we became who we are today. So let's unpack then these three elements um, a little bit more and go through them more specifically. So catching the wave, Bob, can you embellish on that even more? Yeah, this is really about figuring out who your ICP or ideal customer profile is and what their urgent pain is. And one of the challenges is that, you know, and there's a lot of startups that have a really cool technology Mm -hmm. and they sort of try and figure out who to sell it to. You know, at the end of the day, urgency and who you're selling to is a key part of unlocking leads. You know, it answers the question like, why buy now and not a year from now? And if, if you and your customers can't answer that question, like it's really hard to say you found urgency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, often, and I remember this vividly at this stage, you're just trying to survive. You're running around trying to get two deals done or five deals done. You're just trying to chop down trees. And the the metaphor is, it's almost like you're so busy chopping down trees, you miss the patterns in the forest. And the um, urgency and who you're selling to, what actually ends up being the answer to that may or may not be the exact same thing that you thought it was when you start the company. And, you know, uh, this was a little weird for us at Mobile Iron, sort of rewinding back to 2010, that, you know, we'd found in the company on sort of our founding idea, which is we needed to secure and manage lots of different smartphones. And that was a good problem, and people were eventually going to care about it. But candidly, it didn't have a ton of urgency. You know, what ended up happening is we looked a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, looked a little bit up, looked a little bit down. We cast a wider net mm. in those early days, talking to potential customers to try and find the thing that was the hot spot, to try and find the thing that had urgency to it. And when you cast the slightly wider net, you almost sort of map them onto like a little grid of different types of customers and different problems. And you'll eventually find a cluster, you hope, that has a hot spot where you start to see customers go, yeah, mm, yeah, that's a pain. Mm, boy, I'd love to talk to you more. And that's a sign you're on to urgency. And one of the challenges that we felt was that the urgency wasn't exactly what we thought it was going to be. And it was a little bit different in a weird way that kind of felt like heresy to our initial founding idea. But I think this concept of in order to find the urgent pain, you have to cast a slightly wider net and have an open mind and really look for that hot spot makes the difference for whether you, you know, we would have found urgency or not. And candidly, I don't think if we had found that urgent pain in the early days, that was a little bit different than we thought it was going to be. Uh, I don't think we ever would have gotten past product market fit and unlock growth. Right, right. 
And Tehi, how do you advise your startup companies to cast a wider net and catch the wave? What Bob mentioned about founder heresy is a, a major problem because most of our companies, it turns out the urgent pain is different from the founder heresy. And so as Bob mentioned about uh, uh, casting the wider net, ultimately it comes down that there's only one way to overcome founder heresy, and that is with real data. And, and so looking at the hotspots, other things, you know, understanding about why deals win or lose, why they close fast or stall, uh, what drives inbound leads, all that is a way of collecting this data to overcome the, the founder heresy and then to figure out uh, where is the urgent and then pivot then to the urgent pain. The other thing I'd like to mention is that for the modeling folks, the key metric for catching the wave from my perspective is, is very simple. It's just one metric and what is uh, uh, measuring new pipeline growth. Right. You know, how much is your pipeline growing, you know, every month, every quarter? Okay, so that way you can capture yes. how many people are interested in the product. Okay, let's move on to the second part of go-to-market fit, the uh, finding the repeatable go-to-market playbook. Can you, Bob, can you- Yeah, this repeatable go-to-market playbook, in my mind, ends up being the core of finding go-to-market fit. And it was probably the part that I understood the worst as a product-centric founding CEO, which is, um, I think a lot of founding CEOs out there could probably identify with that. So I'll tell you what, <laughs> what the challenge was here, that when I heard the term repeatable go-to-market playbook in my head, I translated that to, we need a better PowerPoint pitch. Turns out that is exactly wrong. <laughs> and I think back to my older self in 2009, 10, and sort of chuckle at just how wrong I was. So the go-to-market playbook, is a repeatable recipe for finding and winning customers over and over and over and over again. It becomes effectively sort of the operating system of your go-to-market. And yeah, okay, those are great words, Bob. That's what, it, that sounds cool. But what does it actually look like and how do you build it? What it's not is like a 30-page document that is a brain dump of everything sales and marketing can do. It's really a one or two page yeah. distillation of what do you and the company do to find and win customers over and over again. Let me sort of paint the picture of what one looks like across the top. Imagine you're standing at a whiteboard across the top of that whiteboard. You draw like four five, six, seven boxes that are your customer journey. So this is part one. So to sketch out your customer journey, the steps of your customer journey, you know, just getting that nailed down is harder than it sounds because often people in the company in the early stage have a slightly different view about what that customer journey is. And <laughs> there's one company I was working with where I had all the execs go up and write down the customer journey up on the whiteboard and they were about two thirds the same, one third different. And the problem is if like the leadership of a company has a slightly different conception of what the customer journey is, how does the rest of the company figure out how to line up behind a repeatable go-to-market? So this basic block and tackling of number one, just getting the stages of your go-to-market playbook nailed down to the customer journey is like huge. You got to get that done first. So across the whiteboard, that's the top. Now imagine a second row. In the second row is okay. what does everybody do or say? at each stage of that playbook. 
So it's a distillation of all the things that could be said or all the things that could be done down to the one, two or three things that need to happen in each stage of the go-to-market playbook. It could be, hey, these are the three value propositions we pitch, or it could be, here are the things that happen in a evaluation or proof of concept, or here's what happens in a second meeting. And what are the things that people say or do? And, you know, this ends up being an exercise in sacrifice because often, particularly early stage founders and product centric founders like me, there's always like the 27 things you could say or do. But again, building a repeatable playbook, you have to nail it down and distill it to the two or three things that really must happen in each stage. And then what the exit criteria is for that stage. So that's sort of the middle part. The bottom part of this, the third row of this go-to-market playbook, is what does everybody in the company build or deliver in order to sort that part of the playbook? And we sort of found this kind of by accident because it sort of became a project list of deliverables. It was like, you know, it could be in the front end, like an SEO, SEM script for, you know, marketing, could be, you know, a PowerPoint presentation, it could be an online video, it could be an evaluation guide, it could be a competitive analysis, it could be... Like there's all sorts of specific deliverables that then need to happen. And when you get these three things lined up, the stages across the top, what everybody does and says in the middle, and then what does the rest of the company do to support it? You now have your repeatable go-to-market playbook and it becomes the operating system of your business. And it should fit on one, maybe two slides. What's fascinating about it is you get it right. People just know what to do. You can hire more sales and marketing people and say, do this and you'll win deals. You can bring on channels, do this and you'll win deals. It goes even far as a lot of times you'll see new sales rep marketing people put the playbook, like pin it up on the back of their cube. And it becomes the recipe for finding and winning customers Mm. over and over and over and over and over again. And when you get it right, it's magic. And these playbooks, these yes, that, playbooks that's a great point, Alan. Like, you know, there are every company develops their own playbooks. We collected a bunch of samples of you know sales led marketing a playbook or a marketing led go to market playbook or a product led go to market playbook, and uh, they're just available on survivalthrival.com, so folks don't have to reinvent the wheel. And Tehi, how do you work with your? So in talking to the portfolio companies about their uh, uh, go-to-market playbook, uh, uh, I I asked, uh, really focused on two things. The first is the the customer journey, and the second is the wow. And so the the customer journey, as Bob said, you know, it's not the Salesforce uh, forecasting stages. So it shouldn't reflect your selling process, but rather the customer's buying process. And the other thing to note is that the, the, the customer journey doesn't end with just more sales or 100% renewal or 100% customer penetration. But in my mind, the, the customer journey ends when your customer champion becomes a hero. So understanding the whole journey uh, with that goal in mind, I find, is the way that you can really build happy customers and a passionate community. The second thing about what is yeah. a wow The wow is something which is closely tied to the customer journey. In other words, the wow is that something that causes the potential customer to move to the next stage of the customer journey, which can be such as inviting a colleague, inviting the boss to see the product, triggering the next meeting, or to try or evaluating the product. 
So the wow it can be a lot of different things, but it has one effect, and that is to cause that conversion from one step of the customer journey to the next. Yeah, this wow concept is a really important one. And it's something that I think a lot of times early founders and sales and marketing leaders sort of intuitively understand its importance. But we gave it the name wow because you know how like, and I think the folks listening will uh, empathize with this. When you're in a meeting with a prospect and you're talking about what you do and you're talking about this capability, that capability, why you do what you do, every once in a while you hit on something where sort of the customer's body language changes and they lean in and they're like, tell me more. I remember those in the early days. And, you know, those are a sign that you're on to a wow, something that really catches the customer's attention, causes them to want to spend more time with you. And to Tahi's point, go to the next stage of the sales process. And I think the key about the wow is that I didn't get to decide the wow. My product team get to decide the wow. The customers decide the wow. And I think, you know, what was sort of funny about that is I think going into it, we kind of thought we knew what the wow was. Turns out the wow was something different. And it turns out that uh, the wow is closely tied to the urgent pain. You know, because the urgent pain, as Bob mentioned earlier, is what causes customers to say, I have to buy this now. And wow is what impresses them so much, as particular about solving that urgent pain. And what makes things really hard is, is that you may feel like you have found that urgent pain and you have the right wow, but because of market changes like COVID or a competition, uh, they change, the urgent pain and the wow change. So we've gone through two of these three elements. We've gone through finding the urgent pain, finding your repeatable go-to-market playbook. Can we now drill down into the third element, um, the finding the right? Yeah, so this is the third piece of go-to-market fit, which is figuring out your go-to-market model. And um, as an early stage founder, this was probably the most confusing part of finding go-to-market fit for me which you hear all these platitudes out there about what the right go-to-market model is for your business. You need to have a freemium model. You need to do product-led zero-touch sales. Like There's all these things you hear about as the right way to sell. So the first thing is there Mm -hmm. is no one right way to have a go-to-market model. There's only one go-to-market. There's only whatever the right go-to-market model is for your business. Um, So, you know, what helped me was to sort of think about like this slider where on the far right, you have sales led go to market models where salespeople go up the middle and work on customers in the middle. You have a marketing led go to market model where marketing generates leads, drives people to an eval and get analytics. And then inside sales picks up and takes the last half of the playbook. And then the far right of this slider is product-led selling, zero touch, no salespeople like an Atlassian or a Twilio. Twilio. So again, there's sort of this slider in your head of on the far left, sales-led, heavy touch, go-to-market. In the middle, marketing-led, kind of medium touch, go-to-market. And on the far right, product-led, zero touch, go-to-market. And it's tricky to sort of figure out where on this slider you land. And Often, 
like the right thing to do is sort of experiment a little bit to sort of figure out where on the slider you are. And, you know, the thing that uh, really helped me, because there's all these things about you have big deals, small deals, channels, all these different ingredients that sort of tell you like where you should be on this. And I found that really confusing. So the thing that helped me and uh, the aha for me was figuring out where you are in the slider actually has more to do with how the customer decides to buy your product, not the physics of their purchase, but like what was the cognitive process they used to buy the process and or buy your product? If you have a situation where the buyer and decider are effectively the same person and you can reach them over digital marketing and you have a well-understood product, that cognitive buying process is great for product-led zero-touch selling. It's great. It's terrific. If another scenario is kind of the buyer and decider are like two people and they work near each other, like somebody and their boss, as an example, then you can do sort of the medium sales model where you do sort of medium touch or marketing-led sales where, you know, marketing and you drive people to an eval and they get you know, most of the way educated in your product and then inside sales picks up and takes the last half of the way. Like that's the example of like a Marketo where the VP of marketing would say, I really want this product and come talk to me, the CEO and be like, Hey, I'd like to buy this. I say yes. And that's sort of the buyer and decider right next to each other. Now, if the cognitive buying process for a company is a committee decision, and that's what we had at mobile iron. In many cases, our customers had five, six, seven people involved in the purchase that that tends to drive you to a sales-led go-to-market model where the salespeople in the field, their fundamental job is effectively coordinating the decision. So figuring out where you are in the slider has a lot to do with the primary question of how does your customer decide to buy? And interestingly, like the size of the deal sort of steers, you know, how customers decide to buy, the complexity of the product who's involved. So there's all these other signals tend to be symptoms of really the core part of the decision, which is how does your customer decide to buy? And the thing to pay attention to here, that as you're winning your first 10 or 15 deals and starting to get some level of repeatability, pay really close attention to actually how your customers decide to buy. Not the physics of it, but again, like watch the cognitive process of how your early customers decide to buy, because those are clues as to how to think about your go-to-market model. Tehi, do you agree with that? Is there anything different that you tell your portfolio companies on finding the ideal go-to-market fit to suit them? Right. Um, going back to the, the surfboard metaphor, uh, there's a quote that I came across from a famous surfboard designer, which says, when designing a surfboard, I create the board to fit the surfer and the wave, going for the ultimate surfing experience. In the same way, I, I look at it as when designing a go-to-market model, uh, the team needs to create the model to fit the team and the wave going for the ultimate customer experience. And so um, when it comes to that ultimate customer experience, um, this is where it's important to have uh, the elements that we talked about, which is, you know, make sure you have the urgent pain, the uh, know your ideal customer profile, find the wow, and then uh, uh, document that and process it in the, in the go-to-market playbook. So getting the fundamentals right 
is actually the most important part of building any go-to-market model. And the third part about this uh, uh, customer experience is, is actually, I, I rephrase it as the, the customer hero journey. So many times people talk about, you know, leads, win, renew, expand, or other parts of the customer journey. But I look at it at the end is, you know, is how to make the customer into a hero. And so if you could have a go-to-market model that uh, um, uh, has the fundamentals we talked about, the urgent pain, wow, and all that, but can lead to make the customer into a hero, then you have something which is truly special. Um, what I mean by that is uh, uh, take uh, in Marketo's case, uh, uh, Marketo initially uh, was about uh, people that would uh, were email marketing managers that would uh, buy Marketo to do email marketing. But uh, the messaging here and the thought leadership was on how to help them become uh a new paradigm called demand generation. And so companies started looking for directors of demand generation. And Marketo provided a lot of thought leadership to uh, help people uh, become great at demand generation. And then next, CEOs were looking for CMOs who could generate pipeline that were very good at uh, uh, demand generation. And so what happens is that uh, uh, Marketo and this whole idea of marketing automation became a way in which people that were entering marketing, just doing simple email marketing, but were on the fast track to become CEO, I mean, uh, CMOs. And so the, the former CMO of Marketo Chandar, who's the CMO of, uh, of Coupa, really describes it well in saying, what's really important here is to have these customer hero stories. And you want to make your users into champions. And it's not talking about your offering and how to make that not the central hero of the story. But if you have a go-to-market model that will help take your transform your user and then make them into a hero within their community and within their com company, then you have something which is truly special. Okay, got it. So we've gone quite deep there into those three elements. So I want to ask you, Tehi, how do you know when you've cracked it? Well, from uh, an investor standpoint, uh, uh, now that there's so many uh, SaaS companies, uh, we know that uh, companies have cracked uh, go-to-market fit when they meet uh, certain investment uh, uh, metrics. Um, the most obvious one is uh, you're on a fast growth rate. In particular, Near Asia Battery has done analysis and he wrote a great blog post about, you know, basically you're on this path to 100 million, which is triple, triple, double, double, double. So that's how companies like Salesforce, Workday, Marketo, NetSuite, and others have gone uh, uh, to path to 100 million. Um, the second is, is that if you have go-to-market productivity, um, and, and there we look at the magic number, which is a new um, growth divided by basically how much growth do you get for every dollar you spend in sales and marketing? And if that number is more than one, then you're, you have a very efficient go-to-market machine. So those are the two primary go-to-market metrics uh, people look at. One is the absolute growth rate. And then the second is, you know, is it productive? Wow. Okay. And Bob, what, what is it for you? You know, as a CEO running a company, being able to figure out whether you found go-to-market fit or not 
is actually one of the most important decisions in terms of deciding to hit the gas on spend to be able to drive growth. And T's right, these metrics um, around growth and sales efficiency are incredibly important to uh, clue you into the fact that have you found good market fit or not? But there's a third I would add, which is you can feel it. <laughs> when you have found good market fit, you can feel it and it feels like momentum. You can hire a new sales and marketing person, they know what to do. You invest more in sales and marketing, you get more leads and more conversion wins. So the metrics help clue you in, you're there, but I think you, you know, at least what I found is you can also feel it and it feels like momentum. And maybe Bob, you can share and specifically at Mobile Iron, when you know that you found go-to-market fit when John Donnelly came to you. Oh, that's a great story. So, um, yeah, the aha moment for me at Mobile Iron was uh, rewind back to, this is, uh, I think, summer of 2010. Um, we had gone from winning like 5, 10 customers a quarter to 20, 25, 30, 50 customers a quarter. And John Donnelly was running sales for us and helped build the repeatable good market playbook. John came into my office and basically said, Bob, I am willing to take up my quota as high as you want it to go, as long as you will let me hire as many people as I can hire, because I can't get to all the deals I see right now. And like I can remember this conversation like in high definition, because as CEO, that is possibly one of the most fantastic conversations you can have with your VP of sales. And uh, it was at that point that uh, we flipped the switch from not having found good market fit to good market fit. Wow. Okay. That is a nice problem to have, Bob. Um, so just to sum up then one final question. Once you've found go-to-market fit, what does it actually mean for the company? So, you know, from a CEO and founder perspective, it means growth and efficient growth. And it's a blast. Um, it means you've really earned the right to move to the next stage as a company. And then as an, from an investor perspective, what finding go-to-market fit means is that you've unlocked capital. Uh, because everyone wants to invest in high-growth companies. And then... Uh, for the folks out there, you're probably asking in your head, well, then what? Well, if you unlock growth, bring in more capital and hit the gas, it's one of the most spectacular moments as founders and entrepreneurs. Like it's kind of why we do what we do. It is spectacular. But then guess what? Like once you hit the gas and start to grow, like everything breaks. What used to work suddenly no, no longer works. And you're really shifting from this like survival mode to survival mode. And uh, may all of you out there uh, have the opportunity to make that transition. And what to do when everything does break is going to be the subject of a future episode. Bob Tinker and Tehi Nam, thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Survival to Thrival podcast with me, Helen Croydon, and co-authors Tehi Nam and Bob Tinker. This podcast is aimed at enterprise startup leaders. If there's someone you know who would find this podcast useful, please share it with them. Subscribe or leave a review. That's how others find us. Oh, oh, oh.